0: The Spiritual Brew Pub Podcast will help you navigate spiritually after or during a belief shift, deconstruction, or crisis of faith. Not to try to convert you to a particular destination, but give you the resources you need to evaluate your future belief or unbelief, and help you follow the religious historical evidence wherever it leads. I'm your host, Michael Camp a recovering conservative evangelical the operative word being recovering sharing my journey and helping others rebuild faith or a reasoned philosophy of life so grab your brew of choice and learn how fact-based history helps us both critique and rethink faith why do we call it a brew pub? because we like to hang out in them at least metaphorically a pub is a great place to let your hair down Share your true thoughts about your journey and discuss things with an open mind in a non-judgmental environment. Welcome everyone to the August 5th, 2018 episode of the Spiritual Brewpub Podcast, a safe haven for ex-evangelicals for anyone restless about their faith or religion in general. I'm your host, Michael Camp. Today's topic is the difference between Jesus and Christianity. And when I refer to Jesus, I mean the first century Jesus movement and differentiating those two things uh, from a historical perspective. We're also going to have a quote of the week, this time from Gary Wills, a really um, excellent author that I'll introduce you to if you haven't heard of him already. And as a special treat, we have a blurb called 10 Reasons Beer is Better Than Religion, which I first heard from Marcus Borg. Uh, it's a very funny way to expose the pitfalls of religion. Well, it's first of all, it's amazing that it's already August 5th. Uh, the first podcast that I did was in the middle of June. I got a little bit busy, I think, in the summer. Uh, went on vacation. Uh, went backpacking in Idaho, went back east and worked on some a family project, uh, played some golf. Uh, this year, I did not go to the Wild Goose Festival, although I did uh, propose a couple of speaking gigs. Uh, last year, I spoke at the Wild Goose Festival. This year, I uh, tried to get two proposals approved, uh, one for myself and one uh, co-presenting with Michael Harden on um, uh, the non-violence and peacemaking history movements and uh, unfortunately those things didn't work out um, we only got approved for what they called the conversation hall but um, anyways that's okay um, we had a great time at the Wild Goose Festival last summer and I'm looking forward to hearing some feedback from people who went this year and uh, the other thing is I've just been really busy with um uh, World Community Service Committee that I'm a a chair of this year with my local Rotary Club. But that's neither here nor there. Uh, We're back into podcasting mode, and this is the topic, the difference between Jesus and Christianity. Now, how might this help you? Well, um, possibly this will help you reconstruct um, a logical reason why you and others may have rejected evangelicalism, fundamentalism, uh, you're done with church or perhaps you've uh, you're fed up with the way people look at the Bible. Um, but you still see some wisdom in Jesus. So this would kind of help you kind of put those things in perspective. Um, maybe understand how the positive things that you see in Jesus uh, can get someone into a religious system and then that religious system can turn out uh, to be abusive. And learn some of the um, how to differentiate the wisdom of Jesus' uh, teachings from the corruption that's found in much of modern religion and many churches. Now, if you just blurted out that question, what is the difference between Jesus and Christianity? um, You might have a thought like, oh, that's easy. Jesus was the founder of Christianity, and Christianity is the religion that's based on Jesus' teachings. Well, if we apply our big idea to this podcast, which is that, you know, we need to look at everything in the light of history, then we will find that that is not the answer to that question. There were difference between Jesus and Christianity. It's not that one is the founder of the other and so forth. When you look at the origins of this faith that we call Christianity, we can see the difference is Far more complex than that. So we're going to delve into this. And uh, before we um, get into it in depth, I just wanted to comment, a uh, cite a comment that came in um, about uh, the first episode, which was on why history matters to your spiritual worldview. Um, I didn't get any specific questions, but I did get one listener that said something that struck me. And she said, it's good to learn that it's okay to have doubts about one's faith. And so that is a very good point. And I hear two things in that statement. One, if a loving God is real, he or she won't get angry if you doubt something. And two, doubt can be a good thing because it can lead to getting to the bottom of something, finding out what is really true, and perhaps uncovering some fake religious news. So Lauren who made that comment to me. Thank you for that. Um, so what do we find if we look at history? Uh, if we look a little closer, or Seth Myers, one of my favorite late night comedians says, uh, if we take a closer look. So that's what it is, it's time for a closer look. We're, what we're gonna find is, here are some, some specific facts that we can uncover. First of all, historically speaking, Jesus did not found a new religion called Christianity. Actually, Jesus was not a Christian. Jesus was a reforming Jew of the first century teaching a radical way of viewing the world for the Jewish people. Not an entirely new way, but a way based on the Jewish prophets and parts of the Jewish scriptures. Not all of them, and we'll see as as uh, we look at the Bible more closely in other episodes, but um, his way was a way of life, a philosophy of life that was based on a very strong love ethic. Love becomes the fulfillment of what God wants in our life, in Jesus' teachings. Love for neighbor, equally. Love for the poor and the rich, sick and well, male and female, adults and children, friend and enemy. And particularly for the marginalized in society, um, who the Jews of that day called unclean due to certain Old Testament laws. Uh, Most of the people that Jesus reached out to who were on the margins of society would have been considered unclean by the Jewish religion um, at the time. But the most radical of this reformed Jewish way of thinking was his teaching and demonstration of love for enemy. And this Reformed Jewish way he was presenting, which is in many ways was lining up with what the prophets had said, was uh, welcoming to non-Jews. It was a universal love ethic for Jew and Gentile. Both Jesus and Paul were Jews. They were not Christians. Um, he was. Paul was also not founding a new religion called Christianity. They were both uh Promoting a reformed Jewish way of uh, that brings um, universal love to humankind. It was a very different way of looking at the Jewish faith um, than the, his contemporaries of his day were looking at it. So this is what a study of history shows us: that Jesus did not create a new religion called Christianity, nor was he trying to convert followers to a new religion. Nor did he tell his followers to convert people to a new religion. He was modeling and challenging his followers to also model a new way of spiritual and ethical life. And to be universal, to welcome the non-Jews into this way of life. Okay, well, what about the church? Did Jesus, or Paul for that matter, found the church? Again, historically speaking, the answer is actually no. So here's what we discover if you go back to the origins. Jesus, nor Paul, created or founded a church. The name church in the New Testament is ecclesia in the Greek, and it just means a gathering of people. The same word is used in the book of Acts for a mob of people. It's simply a gathering. Uh, it's a following of people. It's, it's not an institution. When Jesus said, I will build my church... He simply meant, I will build my following, people who pay attention to what he's saying. Now, there in the earliest movement, there were no churches. There were only gatherings in homes or courtyards. There were no uh, church buildings. Uh, they may have met in the temple in the very beginning, and they certainly would go into synagogues. But as the movement went on, it was evident, obvious, that they weren't Starting a new system of temples and synagogues. It was a a gathering, a informal gathering, an organic gathering of people in homes or courtyards or wherever they could meet. Uh, There were no priests. There was no professional clergy. There was no hierarchy. Um, What we call would call bishops now didn't even emerge until the second century. And eventually it grew into what we would call priests, where a priest would be uh, over a congregation. Um, And then uh, eventually bishops became people who were over groups of churches. Um, And then priests eventually morphed into what we call Protestant pastors at at the Reformation in the 16th century. But in the very beginning, these professional um, clergy class was not there. When Paul lists um, some gifts that people have in the gatherings and encourage them to use those uh, gifts, they were um, called to be, I guess you would say, servant leaders. They had certain abilities, and they were called to use those abilities to encourage others. But it wasn't a hierarchical system, and there was really no church authority, um, that there was um, no... um, system where people could actually lord it over others. Actually, that's the exact opposite of what Jesus taught. So there were no denominations, institutions. There were no seminaries to ordain you. Um, and it's very interesting that at one point in history, um, in the beginning, the Romans just thought the, the, the followers of Jesus were just another sect of the Jews. You know, the Jews had lots of different streams, if you will, and the Romans thought that's the the followers of Christ were the same. And then at one point they realized that they were different, and there was a break with a lot of the Jewish uh, society with the with the Christians or the followers of Jesus. And at that point, the Romans actually began to call this sect of Jews that followed Jesus, they actually started calling them atheists, which is very interesting. Uh, Why did they call them atheists? Because they were unlike any religion of the day. There was no priests. There were no temples. There was no synagogue system. There was no sacrificial system. There were no gods. There was some mysterious god-man who taught love, but this was very different from what they were used to. Uh, from, from the Roman and Greek uh, and Jewish religions that they were familiar with. So it was actually a non-religious movement. And we can see from when you look through the lens of history, you can see that a lot of these modern ideas that we have about church and religion and church authority are read into the New Testament, uh, not derived from its original meaning and context uh, in other words, these ideas are already there and then you find scripture that backs it up. but the whole big picture view doesn't take you there. Um, one book, of course that really gets into this, it's fascinating, of course, is um, Pagan Christianity by Frank Viola. Um, and he exposes how the structure and system of church, you know whether it's cathedral cathedrals, churches or even the school auditorium that becomes a church service. They're actually, it's all patterned after Roman, Greek, government, and religious organizations. Um, From the sermon style, you know, the sermon, we just think of it so it's so common. It's, you know, we think that's the way it's always been. But actually, the sermon style of uh, speaking is from Greek persuasive talks. Uh, with no audience participation it was a was a form of Greek oratory um, that people sat and faced quote like the sage on the stage and uh, there was no audience participation in the earliest gatherings there would have been lots of audience participation but um, uh, not in the way that eventually the uh, Christian churches evolved um, so it's a very, that's a very interesting study, Pagan Christianity. And that's a great book that goes into that. Um, but the only real custom of these early gatherings was what was called the love feast. And that was kind of like a communal meal where people remembered Jesus, um, you know, but there were no priests. There was no priest that was needed to oversee it. You didn't need to have a lead pastor or some ordained person Uh, It was just a group of people that came together and had a meal and remembered Christ. Um, Eventually, that custom morphed into Holy Communion uh, and the Eucharist religious ceremony. Uh, But originally, it was very different than what you would see in your average church. So, uh, Jesus, nor Paul, nor Peter, for that matter, uh, founded a church Uh, When you look at history, it shows you that there's a fallacy there um, that um, also what the Catholics would call uh, the apostolic succession that morphed into a line of popes. History teaches us that um, that was not, that's not what happened. Uh, These kinds of things are all human creations that did not derive from the first century Jesus movement. So what does this mean? Does this mean that all churches are bad? Well, of course not. Uh, But I think we can recognize, though, that churches are often or probably most of the time are problematic, uh, especially if they think that they are the model of Christian community that Jesus instituted. So, for example, in my experience uh, as a former evangelical, I was in the movement for 25 years I was a missionary in Africa. there's a long story. But um, in my experience, um, uh, the evangelical fundamentalist and Catholic churches that I, that I encountered uh, were abusive because they, are, they have a, a system that controls people. And it teaches uh, that religious system to others more than the themes of Jesus' teachings. Now, there's exceptions to this throughout history. Um, you know, not all churches are bad and ab- abusive, of course. Um, you know, I can think of some in history that I've studied that are very different than my evangelical experience, the Quakers, Moravians, Anabaptists, Eastern Orthodox churches, and, and more modern liberal or progressive churches that are inclusive rather than exclusive and are more historically based so certainly there are exceptions. and um, But we have to recognize that so many times churches in general can fall into this trap, and even liberal churches can fall into this trap, of having uh, a religious system. Liberal, for, for liberal churches, it's often falling into the trap of some kind of religious political correctness. You have to, you have to believe a certain way or else. Um, so to conclude this, The study, if you do a study history, um, modern churches, most of them are not patterned after the first century Jesus gatherings, even though they often claim to be. Uh, But they've added so much baggage and and so many things that they just think have always been there, but they don't realize they haven't been there. And they've added layers and layers of things that make it problematic, uh, especially if they insist. That they are, um, you know, the way to do Christianity and impose that on others. So, what's the what's the conclusion here? Well, maybe uh, from from what I can see, church is a completely optional thing. I mean, there is no reason for anyone to feel compelled that they have to be a member of an institutional church or any church. Uh, uh, Christianity is a community. Uh, uh, let's say the G- the teachings of Jesus do teach you to be in community but it does church is not the only way or the best way to be in community so um so to conclude that question what is christianity um we've discovered it's you know uh jesus didn't found a a religion uh jesus nor paul founded an institutional church and so now we need to look at what is Christianity and, and compare it to to what Jesus originally taught. And what and one of the things you discover, if you study the history of uh, religion, how it's set up, and for the most part, you'll discover that Christianity is really a religious system. Um, that's very different, sometimes light years away from what Jesus originally taught. There's usually some kind of overlap, though. I mean, yeah, there's there's overlap. There's things that Jesus taught that you'll hear in churches and in Christianity, of course. But you got to be smart about how to look and uncover the system that is in so, so many churches. Um, it's often abusive. Uh, there's always exceptions, but for the most part... Churches follow some corrupt, abusive religious system. And um, that religious system is what we're going to go over next. Um, But before we do that, uh, we wanted to take a little break from that stream, that line of uh, thinking, and look at the quote of the week. The uh, quote of the week that I've got for you is from a book called What Jesus Meant by Gary Wills, and um, Gary Wills is a really good author. Um, He's written three books that I think are really easy to read. They're short, and they help you historically to put things in perspective. One is what Jesus meant, one is what Paul meant, and one is what the Gospels meant. Um, So one of the things that you'll learn about in reading his books is that Jesus was really against religion and uh, here's the quote that I wanted to share with you that kind of sums this up in, in a very nice way. The most striking, resented, and dangerous of Jesus' activities was his opposition to religion, as that was understood in his time. This is what led to his death. Religion killed him. He opposed all formalisms in worship, ritual purifications. Sacrifice, external prayer and fasting norms, the Sabbath and eating codes, priesthoods, the temple, and the rules of Sadducees, Pharisees, and scribes. He called authentic only the religion of the heart or inner purity. So that's, that's, uh, Gary Wills, um, on the book, What Jesus Meant, and, uh, he makes a really good point that um, you can read Jesus, his quote him, but if you don't delve into and ask those closer uh, questions about what he meant to say when he said that, in in the historical context and the cultural context of his day, uh, you will misunderstand him. So, um, he was not uh, p- promoting a new religion and a, and pr- promoting religion. Uh, at all I was actually very against it okay before we get into what is uh, your typical religious system and why Christianity is one of these religious systems uh, the other thing I wanted to share with you is um, the uh, the blurb 10 reasons beer is better than religion now I first heard this uh, when I went to see Marcus Borg once uh, years ago but I guess the source of it is unknown but um, anyways, I, I, think the original was nine and, and I had a blog commenter who, uh, who added a 10th reason. So here you go. 10 reasons beer is better than religion. Number one, no one will kill you for not drinking beer. Number two, beer has never caused a major war. Number three, beer doesn't tell you how to have sex number 4 when you have a beer you don't knock on people's doors trying to give it away number 5 they don't try to force beer on minors who can't think for themselves number 6 you don't have to wait 2000 years for a second beer number 7 there are laws saying that beer labels can't lie to you oh that that hits hard <laughs> Number eight, you can prove you have a beer. Number nine, if you're devoted to your your life to beer, there are groups to help you stop. And yeah, you can always take things too far. Everything in moderation. Now, if you drink beer, enjoy it responsibly. And number ten, and this is the blogger who uh, added his own com uh, his own uh, reason. You can't play religion pong. So there's your 10 reasons beer is better than religion. But it just kind of goes to show how you can um, uh, uncover some uh, some of the pitfalls of religion if you have a little fun with things like that. So let's get into uh, the last part of our discussion, which is uh, what is the system or pattern uh, that you find in all religious systems and that you find in Christianity. And so uh, after kind of experiencing, you know, what I did in evangelicalism and studying history, I realized that there's some things that kind of jump out at you that, boy, I didn't realize this, but we really did fit this pattern when I was in evangelical churches. Um, The first one would be this us versus them mentality. Uh, you know, we are the saved ones. No one else is. We have the truth and everyone else doesn't. Now, I was taught in evangelicals, evangelicalism that we had the truth. And if you were Catholic, liberal, Muslim, Hindu, a secular person, an atheist, a Buddhist, or... Any of the things that outside us, then you didn't have the truth. Um, you know, we were the only ones who had really figured things out. So that's the first thing—an us versus them mentality. The next thing was what I would call um, the pattern or the or the element of religion that that it's a fear-based approach to life, a fear-based approach to faith. You know, and it starts off with. You know, something is wrong with you. You know, either you are a sinner in need of a savior or you're a totally depraved human being with no hope of redemption without God doing something. And because of that, your default destination is hell. Eternal conscious torment at worst or annihilation at best. So that fear of, you know, there's something wrong with you. And if you don't do something about it, you are on a road to destruction. So, you know, you could say it in other ways. Like if you don't become a believer, you will always be lost. If you don't become an evangelical believer and accept the theology, you know, there's there's consequences. You're not going to find your way Uh, again in fear based uh, religion. If you leave the faith if you fall away you'll be lost and in danger of hell and a life of pain if um what often happens if is if something is going wrong in the world or something going wrong in your life then you know you are to blame or the world is to blame um uh, you know non-christians who accept sin or, or let's say uh Uh, homosexuality often comes up or reject Christ. I mean, there were actually some preachers that said things like, um, you know, 9-11 was caused by our society buying into, you know, sinful ways and homosexuality and things like that. And that this was judgment from God. Um, So, you know, when something goes wrong, there must be, you know, something wrong with you or with the world or with society so it's all it's a fear based way of looking at the world and what happens um sometimes um this takes the form of groups of people uh must be scapegoated um for example gays lesbians liberals pro choice feminists atheists humanists liberal christians heretics false teachers other religions um those people are are set aside and scapegoated as people who are against God and are causing some of the society's problems. Um, liberal Christians can actually do the same thing. This, this is not, uh, to say that liberal Christianity is exempt from having a religious system as well. Um, sometimes they can even do things like this and kind of scapegoat other people if, if they don't follow the religious political correctness, if you will. Um, Let's see, uh, uh, there's another idea that judgment is always looming and a threat. You know, oftentimes you hear people preach, our nation must get back to God. And there's usually an, an or else statement. You know, judgment will come if this doesn't happen. Um, the end times belief, the end of the world belief, uh, which is so prevalent in evangelical Christianity, um, the end of the world is, is a terrible tribulation and we are fast approaching it. Uh, so that can bring fear into people and get them to, um, think about, uh, being more religious because they want to, uh, they want to shelter themselves from that fear that that's being put out there. Um, but you know, really, uh, if you looked at this, uh, some of these examples and compared them, what did Jesus, uh, taught uh, you might say that the Jesus way says there is no reason to fear. There is no reason to be us versus them because we are called to be a brother sisterhood of humanity. Uh, 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 people may be misguided, but they are usually well meaning, um, uh, with the exception, you know, of some very evil people. But people in general, at worst, um, they are lost or brainwashed, but they never, but they're never in danger of being cut off from a way to be restored. And also, uh, God is uh, reaching people outside. Uh, Jesus welcomes people from the outside. Uh, he doesn't have an us versus them mentality, dividing the world into that to two groups, but he recognizes uh, uh, God or goodness or. Um, love is evident in many people. You don't have to jump through religious hoops to be accepted and so forth. Um, another thing that uh, you find out in this religious system is that, um, uh, you know, there's this us versus them. You've got fear and you need a solution. And what is the solution? It's always a religious solution. And the religious solution is usually. You must jump through religious hoops in order to get that solution to get saved. You must accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, Savior. and um, you must accept the evangelical way of looking at the cross, uh, that He took the punishment that you deserved. and only if you accept that can God forgive you. Um, uh, so there's that that element of it uh, that there's always a solution, that is religious in nature and it usually has to do with believing a certain way and doing certain things and following religious behavior codes. Um, uh, You must also uh, keep your salvation um, or you will fall away and lose it. So there's that part of it too. So you've got a solution, but you've got to maintain it. Um, So in order to keep your salvation and please God, you must jump through religious hoops. You know, you got to attend church, become a involved member. You have to pray, read the Bible, share your faith, obey the word of God, um, keep believing the right doctrines, uh, support missions or become a missionary, etc. That's one of the things that uh, motivated me to become a missionary was I felt that in order to please God and obey the word of God, I... Uh, had to step out and basically go out and try to save the world. Um, but not, you know, n- 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 there were some good parts of that. There was uh, uh, reaching out to people and, and doing community development projects. But but a big, big driver in missionary uh, missionaries today that come out of the evangelical movement is to um, uh, help to bring... The good news, supposed good news of Jesus, so that people can be saved, because they're not saved unless you go out and uh, share your faith and uh, become a missionary of some in some way, shape, or form. So, um, you know, in this kind of way of looking at things, uh, yeah, good deeds and love is good, but it really can't save you. You must. Uh, you must jump through some some kind of salvation hoops or God really can't forgive you. Um, another uh, thing that's a part of this religious system that uh, Christianity really is is the um, what I would call idolatrous sacred texts, the belief in, in this case, the inerrancy of the Bible. Uh, this befo- this notion that you must believe everything in the Bible, and you can't reject anything in the Bible. Um, we'll do a, a podcast or two about this topic. It's, it's actually very fascinating. But there's this kind of all-or-nothing way of thinking about uh, the Bible. You must obey the Word of God, uh, even though you might find it confusing how to interpret it. Um, don't worry. There are religious leaders out there who will help you decide how to interpret it, and they'll help you decide who is a heretic and who is not, and they'll impose on you and others what you must obey. Um, so, you know, there's actually, uh, it's actually possible uh, that a secular religious system uh, would do kind of like the almost exact opposite. Um, they might go the other extreme and reject the notion that anything in the Bible is reliable. Um So, in my experience, I've seen it work both ways, but the conservative religious system is really the most insidious because it ends up worshiping the Bible. Uh, The other way, you know, you might have um, uh, some extreme atheistic view that would reject everything in the Bible as if it's got to be all true or all false, all, you know, true or a myth, and there can never be any gray area. So, but that's, that's what religion does. It really divides things, and it, and it uh, kind of makes—it uh, it doesn't like the gray areas, because the gray areas mean that people have to think for themselves. Another characteristic of this uh, uh, religious system that you find in most religions and you find in Christianity is um, what uh, some call the economy of exchange. In other words, to get something from God, you must do something. You got to pray. You got to fast. You got to get into the word more. You got to obey it or obey it more. You got to recommit your life. You got to sacrifice something. Um, yeah, one of the experiences I had was a California group of churches in the 1980s and 90s that I went to it was called. Sovereign Grace Ministries, and they had a big, huge focus on prayer. There was prayer meetings every morning, and there was all-night prayer meetings, and they were calling you to fast and pray. And, you know, it was kind of like, you know, God was not really going to uh, work in your life or the church's life or the life of society or, or whatever unless we did these religious things. We had to pray and fast and uh and only then would God move. God wants revival, they would say, but revival doesn't come unless you do something. You got to be more radical. You got to fast. You got to be uh, pleading in prayer. You have more worship. More get more into the Word. There was some, always something else that you had to do. Um, another element of of the religious system was uh, what I would call sacrificial religion. And that's kind of the notion that the only way to appease God is through some kind of sacrifice. Um, the Old Testament temple system uh, was, was the, the, good, the best example. Um, but even in the New Testament, uh, you know, it's really taking that sacrificial mindset and laying it on Jesus, that Jesus had to die. Uh, on the cross, or else God would not forgive you. That was the only way to appease God. As if God has some higher justice or legal system that he can't forgive anyone without sacrifice. Um, It's this notion that God can't stomach your sin or even you as a person, unless you are cleaned, cleansed. And the only way to get cleansed is through sacrifice, accepting some kind of a sacrifice and then uh, God's justice is is appeased, and then God can only then can God cleanse you. Um, it's the uh, dividing people into the uh, unclean and the clean uh, in the first century Jewish way and the modern Christian way. Um, you know, you, I talked about the us versus them mentality. Well, all the them's. You know the gays, the humanists, the atheists, the non-Christians—they're unclean, and all the usses, the ones who've got it right, were the clean ones. See, so that's the way they divide the world. Um, and so, in this sacrificial religion, someone usually must be punished. There must be some kind of retribution, uh, and so that so that uh, Christianity ended up ended up inventing. Um, what's called substitutional sacrifice. Jesus became the substitute uh, taking the punishment that you and I deserve because we're such terrible people. Um, So God really can't forgive unless Jesus was tortured and murdered on a cross uh, etc. So that is a very um, uh, common element in religious systems and it's Actually, in still in Christianity, sacrificial religion, and it's very interesting to study that too. Because if you look at it uh, from a historical perspective, uh, you actually can come up with a very different reason for for Jesus uh, uh, on the cross. It's it's there's a non-sacrificial way of looking at that. It's very interesting, and we'll we'll have a, a podcast about that someday too. Um, anyways. Uh, the last element I wanted to share about your typical religious system is what I would call heaven versus hell mentality. And and there's, I mean, you could do a lot of work, stuff, uh, material on this. We'll do a podcast on this too one day. Um, but one of the things that I discovered in my his, uh, study of history and looking at what others have done before me in studying history You find out that hell, the concept of hell, the doctrine of hell, is actually a pagan idea. Um, It's not from Jesus or Paul. Uh, It was not taught in the Old Testament. And um, it has its uh, origins in Egypt and uh, Babylonia, uh, religious systems. It's very fascinating. It finally um, came into Jewish thought and then finally came into Christian thought. Uh, but actually you can prove from looking at some original Greek and studying some history that Jesus really never, never taught uh, the doctrine of hell. It's a fascinating study. So again, here we've got the us versus them, right? Us goes to heaven, them goes to hell. Um, this is this way of looking in the world and dividing it up where life is actually very dangerous. As a ev- leading evangelical pastor recently said, um, God loves us but he also may damn us. Uh, it's this notion that, you know, you, you're kind of, you you got to make sure you, you get your life in order because you may end up going to hell. Um, and that's the fear-based religion, of course. Um, now, sometimes evangelicals will try to soften this, and, you know, you go to some churches, and they're not fire and brimstone preaching. They teach love, and and they teach uh, the unconditional love of God and so forth. Um, but w- at some point they will expose their cards and they will let you know that they actually believe when people die, they'll say things like they face a Christless eternity or something like that. Instead of saying, well, they will burn con- consciously in hell, they'll they'll kind of soften it a little bit. But um, uh, that's because... People have a hard time addressing this. It's a difficult subject and topic, and and it was always one of the things that I struggled with in the evangelical church. How can there be a hell? It just didn't make sense and line up with what I saw was the compassion and love of Christ. So, um, anyways, that's a that's the uh, heaven and hell mentality that you see in religious systems, and that's evident in Christianity. So, um, to conclude this. Um, uh, with some exceptions, uh Christianity is really a corrupt uh religious system, and historically, even though the Protestant Reformation uh, they did do a good job challenging the corrupt Catholic Church. Uh, if you study Luther, for example, you'll see him really standing up to corruption and really pinpointing some things that need to be needed to be reformed. But if you dig deeper into history, you realize that the Protestant Reformation did not go far enough, in most cases, um, and then later Protestants even regressed into uh, a, a similar corrupt religious system. So they didn't completely uh, undo this the corruption that that uh, that is in most religious systems. Um, now there are exceptions, like I had said. Uh, there are some Christian groups that are more inclusive, and they're. They're not legalistic or they're more loving and they might not even teach some of the elements that I just described. But they are a minority in Western culture. I mean, there are some groups like the Eastern Orthodox and some minority Reformation movements, Um, minority middle age mystics, for example, Julian of Norwich, uh, who wrote the book Revelations of Divine Love. Uh, You read that and you're like, well, that's very different than. Uh, you know the Christianity that I was taught in church, uh, but that book was written in the 14th century. But see, these are the these are the exceptions. Um, the bottom line is that most of Christianity Christianity, the way we know it in American culture, is a religious system that doesn't square with the original first century Jesus movement. So that's it for this episode. Um, I kind of rambled a bit. Uh, but I hope you got some stuff out of it. I hope you enjoyed it and i hope I hope it helped um, helps people understand uh, their the deconstruction that they've gone through or are going through or helps them understand uh, a way to reconstruct a more historic faith and a and a more um, uh, log- logical spirituality and um, so I encourage you to um, ask me. Uh, questions um, when you wherever you find this blog, there'll be a place that you can make comments and you can ask me questions on those, or just offer your own comments, and uh, I'll try to draw attention to them in in later episodes. So um, that w- that's it for this podcast. The next podcast, I believe, will be on. Uh, I'm going to title it "12 Fake Claims of Western Christianity." Um, you know, with all the fake news. Claims that we hear in today's politics, I thought it would be interesting to look at the fake news in religion for a change. So, until then, enjoy your brews of choice responsibly, and we'll see you next time. The Spiritual Brew Pub Podcast will help you navigate spiritually after or during a belief shift, deconstruction, or crisis of faith. Not to try to convert you to a particular destination, but give you the resources you need to evaluate your future belief or unbelief, and help you follow the religious historical evidence wherever it leads. I'm your host, Michael Camp, a recovering conservative evangelical, the operative word being recovering, sharing my journey and helping others rebuild faith or a reasoned philosophy of life so grab your brew of choice and learn how fact-based history helps us both critique and rethink faith why do we call it a brew pub because we like to hang out in them at least metaphorically a pub is a great place to let your hair down share your true thoughts about your journey and discuss things with an open mind in a non-judgmental environment